Hello, and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com or wherever you get podcasts. It's been a rather warm week as we start to get into the springtime here in Arizona. And I guess here we are on, on this beautiful uh, April evening. Anyhow, I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pellant. I'm Kirsten Dorman. And I'm Haley Smilo. And have we got a show for you this week? A lot's happening in this world, and I'm going to start us out as, as normally happens. So this week, I'm going to talk about something a little different than the usual stories you might hear on my segment. Union campaigns. Specifically, the Amazon Warehouse Union campaign in Bessemer, Alabama. If you have not heard the news already, the union election for this warehouse was a loss for the retail, wholesale, and department store union, which was attempting to unionize this facility, according to the New York Times. But this story is a little messier than that, and it might not even be over. For those of you who are just learning about this, let me give a quick review. The RWDSU started a campaign to unionize this particular facility and attracted national attention in this attempt to unionize one of the nation's largest employers, Amazon, which does not have a union presence at all in its facilities uh, currently. About 2,000 workers at the 6,000 worker facility signed cards to join the union and by virtue of signing those cards, hit the threshold to trigger a union election to be facilitated by the National Labor Relations Board. Amazon did not take this news very well and fought back stridently, employing what has been called a union-busting law firm and mandatory anti-union meetings during the workday, even placing anti-union propaganda in their bathrooms. Even who was a part of the bargaining unit for the election was expanded by Amazon in an attempt to dilute the union vote. This is not to say the RWDSU did not make missteps. This was a fast campaign, only taking months from the start of the campaign to the election, when many comparable union campaigns have taken years and even multiple failed election attempts. And with the staggering loss about two to one at the time of the recording, it begs the question of, should the election have even been called to begin with? All that said, this might not be over. The RWDSU is planning to contest the results and is calling for an investigation into Amazon for for what they are calling, quote, and I don't have the quote up here, unfortunately for what they are calling unfair labor practices. So my question to the panel is, what are your thoughts on Amazon or unions? Or preferably, what are your thoughts on both of those things? I have many thoughts, um, but uh, first, I, I think it's pretty clear just from the already accessible evidence um is it, i i think this 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 challenge is or is very likely to go through and that they're going to be forced to have another election it just from what is already publicly known uh more perfect union has i don't know how but has somehow provided already three massive massive reveals of practices that were being implemented i i think the one that was the Worst was was um, essentially Amazon pressuring and forcing the uh, United States Postal Service to set up a ballot drop box at the warehouse illegally, um, and also so in a sense, in a sense, it was forcing the people to have to bring their ballots into Amazon's warehouse to drop them off, and allowing. Basically, as people were going in to drop off their ballots and deciding their vote for, for Amazon and Amazon's management to pressure their employers on how to vote. And, and also beyond that, I mean, this, this, these sorts of elections are extremely stacked against, against the union organizers. Again, as Gideon said, not to say 
that they ran a perfect campaign. There has been multiple articles about missteps and mistakes that they made, but they're going up against the most powerful corporation in the world. Maybe only, I would even say more stronger than Google with infinite money, infinite resources, and the, and the will to completely dedicate their entire focus to destroying this, this unionization effort. And they're going up against a company that literally has so much money that, that it's, it's, it's just, it's just the, the resources and, the, and how stacked the DAC is. I think it's amazing that they were even able to get a third of the a third of the workers to vote for them. And also, just simply put, they're able to lie. And Amazon companies, they're just able to lie. They're just able to make things up. They're able to engage in rampant disinformation. The things that they're just able to tell their employees completely false information. Uh, it, it, and I, I think it's simply for many reasons. It's one, it's it's very difficult for the National Labor Relations Board to enforce um, enforce when these infractions occur because of how weak the enforcement mechanisms are. And also, just again, as a matter of resources, the National Labor Relations Board doesn't have the resources to get as fully involved as it should. So again, Amazon was able to lie, spread misinformation, create fake websites, create fake Twitter accounts, and all it all in an effort to convince their employees that they shouldn't unionize. And so I, I think I think it just goes to show how stacked the deck stacked the deck is for these for these unionization efforts. And we, why we need strong legislation that that evens the um, evens the playing field between these two. And I, I don't even think that is necessarily a partisan thing to say. I think just from a simple perspective, if you look at how strong employers are compared to their workers and how much power they hold over them. It simply is, is that there's just an incredibly unhealthy misbalance between employees and, and employers. And I think it's safe to say as well that the conditions that have brought this about, that these workers were allegedly, I'm saying allegedly for legal reasons, but allegedly we're being made to endure is really, really concerning on a few levels. First of all, on the level of nobody should be needing to buy special bottles for long distance road trips to um, relieve themselves in um, for when they go to work for the day. And management shouldn't be dealing with that issue by saying, oh, just don't do that. As well as this, I think it's wildly in a, like concerning that time off task at Amazon is so nebulously measured. I've heard so many different things from so many different people about, oh, it's actually just, if you spend X amount of minutes away from task, then it'll start being counted. But I've also heard that, oh, if you pause between scanning things, for example, for more than a few seconds, you're gonna start accumulating time off task. And it just blows my mind that it's gotten to that point, if that makes any sense. Um, and so, you know, union dues are worth it. <laughs> union dues are worth it, in my humble opinion. You know, you may be paying 50 some dollars a month, but, you get that back tenfold, nine times out of 10. And that's really all I have to say. <laughs> um, I'm no expert on unions, but I do know this much. Personal opinion, I have going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Kirsten, I think you make a good, really good point there. Like. Yeah, no, there. I mean, if you can simply, I know the classic, you know, correlation is not causation. Um, but if you take a look at the rise in 
the rise in wages and productivity that they've not kept up and, you know, where they start really not keeping up right around the time when unionization started dropping. Once again, correlation, not causation, but that is a rather concerning one and hints to something that I think that in my view seems to hint to unions when they work, fight for their members. And this isn't to excuse, you know, like there have definitely have been plenty of unions who have not done a good job at representing their workers and whatnot. But yeah, like, and also like, if you look at how much money Amazon had to pour into the anti-union, into the anti-union tactics they used, it begs the question, especially with a lot of labor unions are looking into, well, we want to organize Amazon workers now. And they're probably going to have to be fighting them off for uh, a while. It, it begs the question of, wouldn't it just be cheaper for them to keep the union around than to fight them off? So if this isn't about money, what is this about really? And I guess this, once again, this veering into what I think personally, this is about power. This is fundamentally about power because if there's a union, Amazon doesn't have 100% of the power anymore at the table. By law, there's somebody there negotiating a contract. Anyway, just some thoughts on that. Is there anyone else who has anything to say? I mean, this is personal again, too, but obviously, yeah, it, it is a power issue. Isn't any union issue tend to be a power issue? We've seen that time and time and time again in American history. Yes, unions are a sticky situation for everyone involved. You're taking a lot of risks, but when they work out, it tends to ultimately create better for the workers. You know, let's look at how they get like the nine to five workday, for example, or OSHA or anything like that. A lot of it comes from unionizing. So uh, difficult and like, a battle that is practically impossible to win. Um, but I think Kirsten, Gideon and I, and probably Ethan and John too, would encourage it despite it probably not being the easiest nor most practical thing to do. Yeah, no, I agree with what everyone has to say. Um, again, I'm in the same boat as Kirsten. I don't know a, a ton about unions, but you guys have summed it up really well. Yes, I guess I can officially say then the review squared's uh, um, personal stance of the uh, and consensus of the panel is unions good, and without unions we wouldn't have nice things like basic rights of work because uh, that's the, the, the you don't get nice things unless you fight for them and the people people at the top don't give you things because they're out of the goodness of their own hearts let's just say that anyways uh, that all said thank you so much everyone and i'll hand it off to john for the next segment thanks gideon my segment this week is about tucker carlson drawing news about his recent controversies that he said on his show brian stelter from cnn is reporting that the american uh, i'm sorry that the anti-defamation league is calling for Tucker Carlson's firing in a letter to Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. Um, the letter in quote says in Brian Stelter's tweet, it was shocking to hear this kind of open-ended endorsement of white supremacist ideology from an anchor and commentator on your network. Tucker Carlson has come into many controversies over the years he has been at Fox News and even before in his career. And tonight there's more Twitter buzz going on because J.D. Vance, who is the author of Hillbilly um, Elegy and also has um, a, a documentary, sorry, I couldn't get the word to my head, on Netflix. In a tweet, he said, in quote, Tucker Carlson is the only powerful figure who consistently challenges elite dogma on both cultural and economic questions. That is why they try to destroy him. Don't fall for it this time or any other. And I found an interesting reply to this um, 
to J.D. Vance's tweet, end quote, to what he said. Someone said, which part of his La Jolla Country Day School, Swiss boarding school expelled in parentheses, St. George's Prep School and Trinity College education makes him not elite exactly? Or is it the high-risk stepmom? This is, this, is, this is as obnoxious as your elegy, end quote. So this has, um, has drawn up a lot of controversy within the news media, within social media, and a ton of people, I mean, they've often called on Tucker Carlson to resign for what he's have to say, but what do you guys think of what is happening now specifically? I mean, it's not surprising that Tucker Carlson's getting in the hot water for the 95th time. 90. Who knows? Carlson, to call him anti-immigrant might be an understatement. Uh, he, uh, there's a long series of things that Carlson has said about immigrants, most of which are incredibly derogatory. And it's... No, he's basically the, I would argue, and have many people smarter than me have argued, is one of the biggest peddlers of white nationalist propaganda. And I, once again, I don't come out just accusing somebody of white nationalism out of nowhere. Like there is a lot of stuff he says, if you know anything about, like, we're not talking about just like plain old, um, you know, the stereotype of like, you know, kind of ignorant racism here. Like we're talking about like real, like the real scary white nationalism stuff here. And he plays in those talking points, my friends. Quickly, I just want to add, I've, I've heard it discussed as well by people talking about that exact thing where someone said, oh yeah, I have a few relatives that are open white nationalists. They call themselves that. Not only do they watch him, but they watch him twice every time. And the reasoning that this person said their relatives gave was that they watched the first time for entertainment and then they watched the second time to take notes. I think it's, it's interesting because obviously Fox News is more, I don't know how to put it. They do more news in the morning, if you really think about it, like top stories of the day, besides Fox and Friends, not really Fox and Friends. You know what, actually, let me take that back. Over the years, I think Fox News is obviously leaning like towards opinion I mean they were always opinionated but they do have like working journalists there who do report on stories which is very limited and which is becoming very limited at the station they're becoming more and more and more opinionated and I get that the evening shows are basically all opinionated but to go as to go as far as to accept the station accepting Tucker Carlson's rhetoric and keeping him on the air after everything he's said and done, uh, especially with Fox Business News anchor, the former news anchor Trish Reagan, who dismissed the coronavirus as an impeachment scam right when the pandemic was happening. I just, too many times people are at the station relating coronavirus to party politics, and it's not, they're not directly related, I feel like, in some sorts. But this is an ongoing problem at Fox News. And yeah, you know, I think it's going down. And I think Suzanne Scott should make the right decision and let him go. He's come into so many controversies over the past. And I just, I don't know who he's appealing to besides his only one and only audience at this point. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said in terms of everybody's on, on the panel's favorite discussion, um, journalistic ethics. I think there's something to be said for the way that people will sometimes play both sidesism in this and say, oh, well, CNN also has opinionated content that they'll air and things like that. They'll also air news commentary. Yes, they do, but this is not the time to say, oh, the other people over there do the same thing. Because really, if we're being honest with ourselves, at least in my view, this is not the same thing. The news commentary on CNN doesn't then trickle down to people defending 
things like the attack on the Capitol back in January. We don't see those talking points repeated in harmful ways, in ways that genuinely produce tangible, you can see it with your eyes and it's real harm. Yeah, and I'm not the same. I don't know how better I can communicate that. I think you guys can see I'm getting like, ugh. No, no, yeah. And I think the, oh, the, oh, you're you're being biased is going to come into play. But this has nothing to do with being biased or unbiased. What he's saying is completely outrageous, and this has nothing to do with journalism at all. Tucker Carlson is not a journalist. Mm. People have to remember that. He's solely an opinionated person on Fox News. He's not a journalist. And this has nothing to do with bias versus unbiased. Um, well, you just have to see with what he's saying. It's just outrageous. And to be clear, uh, sorry. And to be clear, it's not to say that he shouldn't have an opinion or that he shouldn't be able to say what he wants to say. It's that people are taking issue with this because what he has to say is producing tangible harm. Oh, and, and Fox has explicit, explicitly defended itself as not, as not a real news network in court and has said that no reasonable individual would actually believe anything that Tucker Carlson says. That, that, is, their, that is how they have defended him in, in legal cases. Um, as well, Carlson is the worst person on net, network television. I, I think it's that that is my personal opinion. Uh, but I mean, yeah, there's the people at OAN and Newsmax, but Carlson is the most watched network news program in the nation. And throughout, his audience has continued to grow. But his and Fox is stuck by him even as it has cost them many advertisers and loss of revenue. He's not good for them making money, but they continue to stand by him. And so I don't think, so this, this um, most recent sort of over the line is, as Gideon said, the 96th time that Tucker Carlson has crossed the line. And so at this point, I really don't think that anything is going to happen to him unless he really makes a critical something where someone can really get him if he does something, but he's not because he is a collected individual. And so he always just barely toes the line on crossing into where he could get into actual trouble. But for now, he is just simply the most popular network television news anchor in the country telling his telling his his listeners that the Democratic Party wants to replace them with illegal aliens. Actually, I'm gonna read the exact quote really quick because I, I really think that it, it's really owed. I did look this up. This is from a CNN article. Uh, the exact quote Carlson said is quote, now I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become I'm literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it, that's true. I really want to emphasize white nationalist talking point. And as somebody who's as somebody whose parents come from the quote unquote third world, um, what I want to say to Carlson, I can't say on air. So let's just move on from my statement. And yeah, you just, can. Uh, just to end this segment, Rob, because this. Can I say something real quick, John? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. If this is the 96th time, it's going to happen in 97th, and 98th, and 99th, and none of us here are going to be surprised. Opinionated journalism is unfortunately a form of journalism right now. And this is strange coming from a journalist, but take everything with a grain of salt. Whatever a journalist says is not just hard fact news. Look at things, read things, evaluate things, know what you're watching. And if you really want our opinion on how newsrooms need to function, go back and listen to our episode with Janelle or Robert Evans or any episode ever where we start talking about the media because it's going to be the same opinion time and time again. And I get, I guarantee you, we went like an hour in ranting about newsrooms. So if you want our real opinions, go, go there, you'll find them. Yeah. 
and Carlson has a BA in history and I, I don't consider him a journalist, but to each their own. Um, yeah, that's my segment for this week, Ethan. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John, for, for the segment. Um, my my uh, story tonight is uh, unfortunately not going to lift any spirits. Then it is on the man-made crisis in Yemen. I call it man-made is because that is the facts. That is the present situation in Yemen. The population would not be starving. They would not be suffering from hundreds of thousands of people suffering from cholera if it wasn't for a continued blockade that has impeded the that has impeded access to food, fuel, and clean water for six years now in Yemen. This blockade has been pursued by a Saudi Arabian-led coalition that had that has has essentially cut off all access to the outside world into northern Yemen. Uh, so to provide a bit of context as to why this this uh, six-year blockade has been going on is in 2015, the a uh, long-running but small militant group known as the Houthis was able to take advantage of a constitutional crisis in Yemen, or, or a political crisis in Yemen, sorry, and were able to slowly and then rapidly take control of most of northern Yemen in an effort to overthrow uh, the what was considered then the legitimate government of the country. The president at the time, uh, Hadi, was able to eventually flee to Saudi Arabia where he asked for assistance. Um, and the primary reason why Saudi Arabia has been so brutal and so forceful in its attempt to destroy the Houthis is because the Houthis are a primarily Shia minority within Yemen and are in a sense aligned in this sort of the Middle Eastern regional conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, they are more aligned with Iran. And so, so Saudi Arabia, which is the probably the, the foremost bearer of, of uh, Sunni Islam in the Middle East, has fears a, a, um, a Shia-led Yemen on their border. Um, but Saudi Arabia's brutality and the level of, of, of devastation and harm that they have been able to inflict on Yemen, and I will say collective harm, they, in a sense, they have collectively punished the entire population of the country because of, of the Houthis, because they don't want the Houthis in charge. And But Saudis would not have been able to do this without support from the United States, France, and the UK. The US, France, and UK, and Canada continue to sell weapons that are being used by the Saudi Arabians to kill Yemeni civilians. We are, we are selling them bombs, we are selling them aircraft, and we are selling, and we are providing them intelligence, and we are providing, we, bef, all the way up until last year, we were providing them logistics as well. We were helping to refuel their planes as they were doing bombing missions in Yemen. And as well, if the US wanted to, it could today force the Saudis to end the blockade, but we don't, okay? And the Saudis would not be able to maintain this blockade without the US's implicit diplomatic support. Much of the world is, is against what the Saudis are doing, but because the US is in a sense implicitly supporting it diplomatically, no countries are really able to take definitive actions against the Saudis. And so this, this needless suffering that is occurring, there are 53% of Yemenis are starving. There are, as I said, 500,000 people with cholera. And the, the UN is estimating that this year, 400,000 children could die of malnourishment. And this is continuing when the U.S. could stop it. And this is why there are there's a hunger strike that is taking place uh, in Detroit um, amongst the community there, uh, amongst the small community there, in an effort to ask the U.S. to end to force the Saudis to end the blockade. And that doesn't even mean it doesn't mean that even forcing the Saudis to end their bombings or end their military campaign. But it's just to just to let 
the Yemeni civilians get access to the fuel and water and food they need to survive. And that is what's been taking place for the last four years. Um, so I, I just wanted to go into that because it's it, the world's worst humanitarian crisis right now, and it is entirely man-created. Man yeah, uh, the crisis in Yemen that's been ongoing for the past couple of years, it's just been nothing short of the huge tragedy, because as you said, Ethan, completely man-made. This is not a natural disaster, which do which natural disasters happen. They happen everywhere, almost. But this is not a natural disaster or anything. This is completely by the machinations of factions, both in inside Yemen and outside Yemen too. And this sort of seeming to become an ongoing proxy war. The is kind is there's many countries that have been fallen prey to proxy wars before it's not a new thing in the history of humanity but it, this one is just so particularly tragic and the blockade is having no effect on the conflict the bombings are having no effect on the conflict the houthis haven't lost any territory for two years and are just as strong as they were at the essentially at the beginning Essentially, the Saudis are unable to defeat the Houthis. And also at the same time, the instability that's taking place in Yemen is also allowing other terrorist groups and other separatist groups. So not only are the Houthis trying to break away northern Yemen, but there are also separatists in southern Yemen, and which, are, which are being supported by the United Arab Emirates. And at the same time, you are having ISIS and Al-Qaeda operating and controlling territory in Yemen. And so... The, just to get the point across, the Saudis are dropping enormous amounts of bombs and, and collectively punishing the entire Yemeni population, and they aren't even winning the war. And so this really has no end in sight. So really, no matter how much longer the blockade continues, doesn't isn't having any effect on the actual conflict itself. It's needless suffering that is taking place. And if, uh, if the panel didn't have uh, any other thoughts, I'll hand it to Kirsten for her story. All right, thanks, Ethan. Yeah, this is just such a hard one to, like your story, it's, it's so hard to wrap your head around that kind of thing, especially because like you said, it, it's all man-made, which is just crazy. But this week, I wanna talk to you guys about MySpace. Those of us on the panel are a little too young to really remember what it was like to use MySpace. For a lot of people though, it might just feel like yesterday that Tom from MySpace was a name everyone recognized almost automatically. Jeffree Star, among other internet celebrities whose relevance has been lost to time, honestly, was beginning his rise to infamy and perfecting who was in your top eight was absolutely crucial. One woman, Belinda Lane, remembers the MySpace renaissance a little differently though. Her 24-year-old daughter, Crystal Theobald's murder in 2006 was the first in a long line of dominoes that led Lane and her niece to creating multiple accounts on the site to track down who was responsible. This is the subject of Netflix's newest true crime documentary, which I'm sure you've also noticed have been coming out at a quicker and more regular pace than before can't just be me. It's titled, Why Did You Kill Me? The trailer dropped on YouTube this Wednesday the 7th, and the release date is for April the 3rd, or April the 14th, rather. As always, it's time to dig into the basics of the case behind this one a little bit. So we find ourselves in Riverside, California. It's February 2006, and it's pretty late at night. Crystal was riding in a car with a few others when an SUV full of gang members pulled up and opened fire. Crystal was fatally shot in the head. The attack was reportedly meant to be in retaliation for a shooting earlier that day of one of the gang's members by another rival gang. Nobody else in the car with Theobald were in any gangs though, and neither was she. 
Lane was in the car ahead of Theobald, according to NBC, and turned around to help her and the other victims after witnessing the shooting. After her daughter was buried, she took to the internet in her search for justice. Back in 2011, Lane spoke to Richard Diatley, reporting for the Press Enterprise, saying, you know, the streets talk. We were given information by various sources, so we created a couple of bogus profiles on MySpace. It all started out with a profile under the name Rebecca. Lane was told that while a friend made on that profile wasn't involved in her daughter's shooting, he had friends who were. Eventually, Lane had networked enough in her, or Lane had networked enough to where she could begin messaging with a suspect still wanted in the case. In their initial exchange, he gave her his real name, William Sotello, and his phone number. In a later conversation, he revealed that he drove a Ford Expedition, which was the kind of vehicle used in the attack. At that point, in Sotello's words, the detectives had bits and pieces, but information gathered by the Rebecca account was enough for investigators to ask him to come in for a voluntary interview. He went missing almost immediately after this, and Lane, in June of 2006, wrote a post from another account under the name Angel, which used a photo of Crystal. Why did you dot 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 murder me? The investigation would continue until charges were finally filed in August of 2007. Sotelo, among others, would eventually face justice because of what Lane was able to accomplish. Lane, who kept up her social media campaign in the 10 years that Sotelo was missing, received a tip in 2014 on Facebook that would eventually help locate him. Because he entered a plea deal in January of 2020, he was sentenced to just 22 years in state prison. The other six gang members involved were sentenced to lesser charges and reportedly received prison terms averaging a few each. And the gunman in the attack, Julio Heredia, was sentenced to life in prison in 2011. Now for the panel. Since this seems like it'll be more of an investigation-focused fo documentary, will you be watching Why Did You Kill Me When It Drops? Yeah, I will. That seems definitely very interesting what you just said and yeah yeah I'm too young for my space but that's I think what you said is entirely very interesting and it makes me think of like the dangers of like social media like in general to see like what has come from Facebook Instagram Snapchat and MySpace and just like in particular like it's not related to MySpace, but with like sharing your location on Snapchat, like on Snap Maps, that could be potentially dangerous because a lot of people are actively sharing their location with other people, which I don't know. I, I'm not one to do that, but I just think it's so interesting to see how much social media has improved our society, but it also has some dark damaging effects and Obviously, we've seen many tragic cases that are happening. So, but yes, I would definitely be watching the documentary. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting. I think you bring up a really interesting point about the internet and how it kind of interacts with the way that crime kind of exists in our society, where in this case, it kind of worked out for the better that people were oversharing on the internet because that's a big part of why they were caught and able to be brought to justice. And mm -hmm. another, that makes me think of another case in Delphi, Indiana, where it's still open, but these two um, young teenage girls, they were found murdered in this state park. And a yeah. big key piece of evidence, the, one of the only ways that we have of identifying their, potentially their killer, is that one of the girls took out her cell phone and took Snapchat videos. Um, of the man approaching them. Yeah, I, I remember that because I'm not too far from Delphi, Indiana. And um, I think the anniversary just came up um, in February, I believe. I be it's February or March. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, it's, I've been actively tracking it. I'm so shocked it's not solved, but there's so many cases um, in the United States that are just not solved and considered cold cases and 
yeah no that what she did was yeah she did get that recording i remember when they played that um yeah i i agree kirsten yeah it's interesting to see how the internet kind of plays a role like that um what about the rest of the panel will you guys be watching this when it comes out uh, i might actually uh you know with school about to end uh, in like about a month i'm going to be completely free of uh of responsibilities for about like two weeks before everything's before you know my summer stuff starts to really kick in so yeah it might take some time during those two empty weeks and uh take some time and watch this as yeah i'm very interested by these kind of investigations like going into like trying to piece all this together and i do think kirsten it is very interesting how yeah, social media oversharing can really be a bad thing at times. Like, you know, John was pointing out like Snapchat sharing location, which I'm not somebody who who's the absolute most active on Snapchat, but I have that off very deliberately. It's like, you do not need to know where I am. Like, oh, yeah. I share my location with like two people and those are just people who I have lived with mm-hmm. and that make sure, like family to make sure, you know, it's like, if I, you know, you can track me in case they, like, but that is solely yeah. because I'm either related to these people or that I happen to live with them in some capacity. But anyways, you know, it's very interesting how kind of our usage of technology is a comp- uh, becoming an important component in a lot of different this, uh, crimes. It's like something that can help bring some kind of resolution and help piece together a puzzle because it's just one more piece that can lead to bringing out the whole picture. Yeah, I thought you and Haley might like this one a little bit better because I know you guys are definitely not crime junkie type people, but since this is more investigation focused, I I guess I guessed halfway correct. Gideon wants to watch. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll give you the other half. I'll add to, as I've said before with your segment, I'll add it to the list of like a hundred things because at this point I'm so backed up with TV that it's like problematic, but this will go higher than like the murder shows. So I'll tell you that much. Um, but the two things that struck me most about this was one, like I originally was like, oh, that's cool that social media was actually helpful if we even want to call MySpace social media. I guess it's a form of social media. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even think to cross the path of, oh, how harmful social media also is till John brought it up, which is probably problematic that my brain didn't go there. But um, <laughs> it was interesting and cool to me that it was helpful. And then secondly, the other thing I was thinking about is why Netflix is all of a sudden putting out so many crime documentaries. It's I'm confused by it and intrigued because we have now talked about Netflix and Hulu releasing things almost bi-weekly I guess at this point um and started by criticizing it and being like this is potentially harmful and dangerous if we don't know about it and now it's like a reoccurring theme so I'm curious as to if you have any reasons or thoughts behind why that is so I also thought that was super interesting and like you said I've been I among others have been kind of noticing this pattern of like oh okay we didn't I, I at least wasn't hearing about like, oh, Netflix is dropping a new true crime documentary again and again and again. Um, But I think it could be that people are responding well to these for the most part. And even when they're not, outrage marketing is a thing. And it's really, really effective. And Netflix and Hulu are such giant companies at this point that like, if they were to make a mistake with one of these, it really wouldn't hurt them that badly. Their stock might go down for a day or two, but realistically, it's not going to take them down in any meaningful way. So really, it's just, it's net gains here because there's a community ready to talk about these cases and kind of eat up these documentaries, but also there's families out there and there's people who are loved ones of these victims who want their stories told. So in a way, it's just like social media. It's kind of like a double-edged sword. There's good elements, there's bad elements. And it's all about whether or not we choose to take the good with the bad, I guess. 
So if there's no more thoughts on this one, I can pass this right back off to Haley. And thank you guys for once again, going down the little true crime rabbit hole with me this week. So as always, we've got some lighter fare in the sports world because what more would we expect from sports? Just kidding, it's been like a social issue for the past couple of weeks, but today it's not a social issue. We're talking about something fun. If you've been anywhere near sports Twitter as of late, you might know where I'm going with this. And if you haven't, there's been lots of new uniforms in a variation of different leagues. The MLB, the WNBA, and the MLS all released new jerseys this week, so I wanted to talk about them. Obviously, I'm going to start in the MLB because what else would you expect? The Boston Red Sox were the first ones to drop a new jersey. On Wednesday, the 6th, they came out with a new blue and yellow uniform. The actual design's fairly simple, but it's cool to see something Boston Red Sox that didn't have any red involved in it. And on the sleeve, it has a patch reading 617, which is Fenway Park's area code. This is the first of many MLB jersey collaborations between Major League Baseball and Nike. Between now and 2023, every team will have a new Nike City Connect jersey. This is a season where they're getting the jersey, obviously Boston, but so are the Marlins, the Cubs, the hometown D-backs, and the Dodgers. But now let's move on to something a little more exciting, the WNBA. To celebrate the league's 25th anniversary, each team unveiled three new jerseys, a heroin edition jersey, an explorer edition jersey, and a rebel edition jersey. For those of you who didn't catch on, it spells out her. With 36 new jerseys, it's hard to choose a favorite. So I'm going to give you my top five. Coming in at number five is the Washington DC Mystics. They're headed back to the 2013 look with a simple red and blue design. But the detailing and meaning is impressive. The uniform is stitched with the 19th Amendment and is representative of women's suffrage and protest all around Washington, DC. And number four, we have the Chicago Skies. It's a clean blue layer jersey that's fun to look at. Across the front is a phrase, Shy Town, in white lettering. According to the Skies website, the inspiration for this jersey was to show the strength of Chicago women. It represents breaking the glass ceiling and pushing the boundaries. Number three is an orange and purple jersey. I think you can guess where this is going. It's the Phoenix Mercury. The design is cool. With the only two-toned uniform in the league, it stands out. According to the Arizona Republic, this Explorer jersey is representative of the Valley, the X Factor, the Suns fans, and Mercury fans, and it's also representative of Arizona Sunsets. Filling in the number two spot is the Indiana Fever. They made a jersey based off of Stranger Things. It's black and red, which isn't the traditional Fever colors, but the jersey looks super clean. While it's not overly symbolic of anything or representative of anything, it's a jersey I'll definitely remember. And then at number one, taking it all is New York Liberty. And yeah, you might say I'm biased, but how could you go wrong with a jersey that has equality across the front with nice teal coloring and a smart usage of the team's logo? For me, it takes the cake. But who takes the cake when it comes to the MLS? It's time to find out with another top five. And surprisingly, it was most can- mostly Canadian teams. And at number five is LAFC. It's a slick gold kit done well, and making a gold uniform isn't easy. The design is fairly simple, but it looks clean once again, and it's a good home uniform. The sleeve has the words Los Angeles stitched in black in a circle around the sleeves, and I think it's a good little detail. Coming in at number four is CF Montreal. You can't go wrong with a good black kit, and this is just that. There's nice layering with geometric snowflakes, and for a team that's just getting started in the MLS, if they can do just as well as their kit, then they're in for a good season. And at number three, and now my bias can be slightly reduced, it's the New York Red Bulls or the New Jersey Red Bulls, depends what you want to look at it as. And after growing up seeing lots of Red Bulls jerseys, I think they finally found a design they can stick with. It's a nice white jersey with opaque boxes that add just enough detail to keep the interesting, to keep the jersey interesting, excuse me. Just missing out on the number one spot is the Vancouver Whitecaps. If you haven't caught on when it comes to football kits, I like them simple and one-toned. And this one's a simple white kit with good black and blue lining. And taking in the number one spot is Toronto FC. With a red and black four-quadrant striped jersey, the quadrants represent club, city, house, and supporter. And the kit itself just looks super nice. If I've learned anything through my Twitter going through this week or tonight, it's that I need to stop looking at jerseys every time they're dropped or figure out a way to make more money to buy jerseys. But I'm going to go with the first option. Panel, have you seen anything about these new jerseys or any thoughts about any other jerseys, whether it be MLB, MLS, or WNBA? 
You know, I saw this Chicago Sky jerseys because it was on the news. And yeah, I really like them, especially like around like what you said about celebrating Chicago women. Um, I think that's so cool. I, I love the jerseys, brilliantly designed, yeah. Yeah, the WNBA ones definitely stand out the most to me. They seem to have the most meaning behind them and the colorways are cool. Oh yeah, Haley. Um, I've not really seen, been paying much attention to the sports uniforms. I didn't realize they were a bunch were dropping over the past week, but you're right about the WNBA ones, um, just looking at them up now and you talking about them like, yeah, no, the, they look good. And I do enjoy the embedding of meaning into them like that, like the W, like, I guess with Alejandro being absent, I get to fill in partly as the <laughs> try to fill in the big shoes of the, of the WNBA fan here, um, despite not exactly being the biggest one because of whatever, but like, I do appreciate them. And, but like, yeah, no, the kind of embedding of meaning they put into a lot of what they do and a lot of their uniforms is very, it stands out among our pro leagues, like all of them, men's and women's, exceptionally so. Yeah, again, I thought it was a super cool thing to do, and I hope that more leagues move forward with doing that and embracing some sort of message, whether it be something city pride-wise, uh, progressive social movement wise, whatever it is. I hope that more teams and leagues can incorporate that. I think that's most of what we have for today. Unless Kirsten or Ethan has anything they want to add. I do not know anything about jerseys, but I do know that I trust Haley and I trust her takes. So listen to Haley. She's right. I don't care what it's about. Use this soundbite for almost anything. I will second that. I only know things about football jerseys I'll, and to a limited degree college basketball. I'll take the high praise, but go find the jerseys out for yourself. Um, you can listen to us to have us be more friendly towards each other and learn even more fun things any Friday at seven o'clock on Blaze Radio or any podcasting place you get your podcast, we'll be there. You can find us. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, review underscore squared. And that's what we have for tonight. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great one. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime.